this is the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian NATO Green. Welcome to my podcast. Uh, this is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. Uh, today's episode is another audio documentary of sorts. Uh, today on the NATO Sessions, I get gentrified. Uh, people are pretty upset in San Francisco about gentrification these days. I've been upset about it. I, I needed to get my thinking clear. Uh, I've been doing this my whole life. When there's something that upsets me or confuses me or frustrates me, the way that I figure out what I think about it is by trying to find interesting people to have conversations with about it. And uh, that's what I set out to do. Um, also, I've been wanting to figure out how to talk about it on stage. And so the process of producing this podcast not surprisingly, uh, spontaneously started bleeding out on stage uh, in my stand-up. So, you know, and I, it's part of how I approach my stand-up is uh, that I always want to be sort of in close dialogue and interaction with activists and social movements. Uh, to paraphrase Karl Marx and Lenny Bruce, uh, here to, heretofore comedians have uh, only told dick jokes but uh, the, uh, about the world, uh, but the point is to change it. Um, so I, uh, uh, I was talking to activists and it was affecting my comedy. And so, uh, the first thing I want to do is, uh, uh, share with you some of the standup that came out of it. Um, there's been a, the, the gentrification conversation in San Francisco of late has been sort of posed as between techies and everybody else in December, the CEO of a company called angel hack took to his Facebook page and spouted a bunch of mess. And, uh, it, it, uh, sort of. It was a big, like, 47% let them eat cake kind of uh, tone-deaf moment for the tech industry and, and uh, antagonized people. And a week later, I went on stage at the Punchline to talk about it. So here that is. So just to give you some context, uh, there's a thing that's been happening in San Francisco uh, called gentrification. Um, so let's start there. Now, my problem with gentrification is that uh, I like... I like a, a, a little bit of gentrification because I've seen life without gentrification and it's called Fairfield and it sucks. Uh, my problem is I like a little bit because I, I don't like so much that I get evicted, but I just want enough that I can get creme brulee. You know what I mean? Like Angel Hack CEO Greg Gottman went on his own Facebook page to complain about homeless people. Just got back to San Francisco, I've traveled around the world and I gotta say, there is nothing more grotesque than walking down Market Street in San Francisco. Uh, let's stop right there. If there's nothing more grotesque than that, then you have had a good life and need to pipe the fuck down. Uh, why the heart of our city has to be overrun by crazy homeless drug dealers, dropouts, and trash, I have no clue. Okay, fair point. That's a historical question. He asked why. As a San Francisco native, I can perhaps shed some light on it. Uh, it's, it is a highly technical answer, so I hope you'll follow along with me. Here's how it works. If you come to a place and take someone's home, they become homeless. Ta-da! Uh, that's cause and effect. And then, without the home, they are sad and cold, and they turn to the warmth of the crack pipe to keep them warm. That's a logical response to that. Like, I'm gonna spend the next 17 hours talking about this, so you guys better buckle in. Uh, uh, so the difference is that in other cosmopolitan cities, the lower part of society keep to themselves. They sell small trinkets. Uh, he's talking about like chicle on the side of the freeway in Tijuana, you know, like, I guess our homeless are not entrepreneurial enough for him. Uh, they sell small trinkets and beg coyly. Uh, 
What is begging coyly? Because so I have trouble envisioning it. Uh, this is my best guess of what begging coyly is. In downtown SF, the degenerates gather like hyenas. That's a horrible thing to say about Gavin Newsom. Uh, <laughs> spit, urinate, taunt you, sell drugs, get rowdy, act like they own the center of the city, like it's their place of leisure. Like it is. Uh, so, first of all, and I don't, I, he doesn't need to know this, but it'll just be our secret uh, that we'll, fill, we'll keep amongst ourselves, but uh, those people are actually employees of the city of San Francisco that we send down there to keep more of those fucking people from coming here. Uh, they are a part of our deterrent capability. So, those are just art students getting college credit. Don't worry about it. Social practice art, it's cool. Believe me, if they added the smallest iota of value, I'd consider thinking different, but that crazy toothless lady who kicks everyone that gets too close to her cardboard box hasn't made anyone's life better in a while. Obviously, if you get too close to someone's cardboard box, they're gonna kick you. That's personal space, duh. That's just manners, right? If you come stand on my doorstep, I'm gonna kick you. Like, that's that's just personal space, right? Stand your ground. Uh, so... But he apologized, and this is what he said. I hope this thread can help start an open discussion of what changes we can make to fix these serious problems. Uh, we've all fucked up with reply all, but that was not a like, whoops, I didn't mean to say reply all. That was like, okay, it's manifesto time, motherfuckers. Like, I have things to, oh, I can't say that. If you were a tech person, this is not, I'm not mad at you personally, it's not you. I'm sure you're a nice person, it's just everything that you represent. Uh, these tech people are just, they're on their phones all the time and they're annoyed if you get between them and their phone. Homeless people are like, are you Quetzalcoatl? Let's talk. I have things to say to you. I've been wanting to catch up. You know what I mean? It's awesome. San Francisco is not an app. You know what I mean? It's not Sim City, right? You can't just be like, let's put this over here. You know, a city is a place in a community with people. It's not like a fucking search engine optimized user interface, transmedia, you know, experience. Like, everybody should feel welcome here, but if you're gonna come here, be cool. Like, oh, you're fleeing death squads, you wanna build an app, you wanna get a face full of dicks. Everybody, over here. Like, it's cool. You build your apps about how that guy can get a face full of dicks. Let's make this useful. We can all be here together. So, uh, I, I had all these questions about gentrification. It's something that I had strong feelings about, but I felt like my thinking wasn't clear. I, you know, that, uh, uh, is it happening everywhere at the same time in the same way? And and is it about, is all change bad and who's responsible and why why have have the smartest activists everywhere in the world failed to figure this out and so i sat down with some people uh first i i talked to uh fernando marti of the council of community housing organizations and uh writer and historian and activist chris carlson we uh, hung out in the basement of lost weekend video in the mission district to uh get to the bottom of it and then later on i I also talked to Alicia Garza, uh, the executive director emeritus of Power, People Organized to Win Employment Rights, an organization of low and no wage workers based in the Bayview. So uh, here are those conversations uh, sort of woven together. I am uh, 
aware that wading into a topic like gentrification that somebody is somebody's going to send me an angry email being like why didn't you include so and so on your panel or why didn't you cover this and i just i wanted to sort of let all of us off the hook that i am not a journalist i'm not an academic i don't give a shit um you know that this is really about uh, like I have these strong feelings about it that I sort of wanted to use to to frame our, the beginning of our conversation and hope that you can save me from myself. So, uh, and specifically, like I'm a San Francisco native. Uh, my parents moved out here from Chicago for the summer of love to be part of the counterculture. Um, and now basically almost everybody that I grew up with has been priced out of the city. So the, the changes in the city, like our... Uh, incredibly like I'm I'm I, upsetting to me like I'm sort of I feel this intensity of pain about you know the seeing the evictions and closures and how nobody can live here and how San Francisco is a great place for me to grow up and how the city that I would love to grow up in is is has been strangled and I'm really brokenhearted about that and I also am honest enough with myself to be aware of my own contradictions as long as I have been aware of the conversation in local politics about gentrification, it's talked about this eviction or this campaign or this developer or this planning commission or this mayor or whatever. And as a comedian, I get to go on the road and some version of the same conversation is happening in New York and DC and Chicago and Boston and Seattle and Portland and East LA and so on and so forth. So uh, one of the things that I'm sort of being curious about is like, is it a pure coincidence that the ruling class of every city in America seem to, seems to have discovered the same hustle at the same time? Uh, or is there some larger force at work that you know about that is seeing the, sort of setting up the, a similar sequence of, land, of patterns of land use and development? Well, it's also not just in the United States. It's happening in global cities all over the planet. So wherever there's a city that's in demand by the wealthy, uh, places where they want to have their apartments or their families living or chance for investment and opportunity, on uh, real estate's a very useful asset form still, and especially in a period in which the so-called reckoning that took place in 2008 never took place. They basically just kicked it down the road. So there's this giant bubble of fake money floating around in the form of derivatives and you know multiple referenced versions of wealth that are trying to find something real to sink themselves into. And so the fact that we have this so-called quantitative easing going on at the Fed level means that there's a steady stream of asset value inflation going on and that everything else, the money has to go somewhere. And for huge numbers of people with, with wealth, they want to put it in property in the United States. They think that is a safe investment. And so the cities where we live, unfortunately, are super desirable now because of a longer-term transformation of urban life. There's not any surplus value being generated in very many parts of the economy on the planet right now. Mostly it's just circulation, and it's speculation based on circulation. And so the this explosion of this, you know, uh, derivatives market, you know, the collateralized debt obligations and structured investment vehicles and all this blather that came up over the last 15 years, it seemed to have collapsed in 2008. And, and it, part of it did, but most of it was saved by this reshuffling of who owned what and, and just let's move on, let's uh, look the other way, we're going to just buy everything off of you, the U.S. government will back you up to multi-trillions of dollars. And we won't let the collapse happen. So instead, they're trying to slowly eliminate you know, all this debt that's in the system, but they're actually not able to do it. So this quantitative easing prevents them from ever having to, to sort of have their day of reckoning. We're here with Alicia Garza of Power. 
at the Power Mothership in the Bayview of San Francisco. It's on Keith Street. I don't know if that's classified information, <laughs> but uh, uh, this is uh, we're talking about gentrification and as one indication of like what's up with gentrification. When I entered your address into my phone. My iPhone was like, you must not mean that Keith Street. <laughs> <laughs> you must mean the one in the suburbs. <laughs> I love that. It goes, did you really mean? Yeah. You don't, you don't want to go there. <laughs> we know what else you look for. It can't possibly be this one. <laughs> so, I know I keep expecting them to you know, flash the danger sign. Yeah, right. Like, Are you sure you know where you're going? <laughs> yeah. Uh, or just be like, why? <laughs> <laughs> So, is there um, a coffee shop out there? Yeah. Is, is there some new like uh, you know uh, home uh, charcuterie place that has some special sausage that you want and it's gluten free, <laughs> right? So, um, so I uh, I've been on this terror by gentrification, and here we are in the Bayview. So, the first thing I wanted to ask you is how, how is how is this this neighborhood changing? It's hmm. a good question. Um, you know, it's interesting because Bayview is one of the holdouts almost in the city. When we look at working class neighborhoods in San Francisco, you look at the mission, right? The mission has been gentrified a couple times at this point. Uh, and the Bayview is still very much on the verge. Um, and a lot of that, I mean, there's a long story to that, right? We could get into that at some point. But you do see shifts. Um, demographically, you see changes. Uh, certainly a couple of years ago, I was telling you earlier, we had a storefront on 3rd Street and uh, we started seeing white folks jogging without dogs at night, no headphones, you know? Um, and I always use that as an indicator, right? I, 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 there's a, there's a, a, a great comedian, Dwayne Kennedy, I don't know if you know Dwayne, who we were talking once and we talked about gentrification as a process of white people decelerating. <laughs> <laughs> It's like first, first you see them drive through, and then they bike through, and then they're jogging, and then, and then, the, and then once once you see them down to walking with strollers, then yep. it's like, okay, it's time to move, it's honey. On. They're yeah. here now. <laughs> it's on and popping, right? Um, but I think the other kind of aspect that you see um, is you see demographic changes in terms of working class folks, right? So uh, Bayview has always been a multiracial community. Um, it's the largest remaining Black community left in San Francisco. Um, and for the first time in a long time, the majority of residents here are not black, right? Um, and it's not to say that the majority of residents here are white. It's to say that demographically, working class folks of color are getting pushed out of other areas in the city. And this is one of the last affordable bastions uh, left for now, besides Daly City. And we don't claim them, really. Right. <laughs> so, and, and like, it seems like, like people who lived here, that sort of the Bayview is moving to Antioch. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really interesting way of talking about it. It's true. The Bayview is moving to Antioch, to Sacramento, to Vallejo, to Pittsburgh, Hercules, you know, all these places where you're like, what? Where is that? Is that still in the Bay Area? And it is, right? And it's also incentivized. So if you, for example, want to get on Section 8, you're going to be waiting 10 years to get on Section 8 in San Francisco. You can get Section 8 pretty quickly in Antioch, in Hercules, in Pittsburgh, in Vallejo. Well, you know, it's interesting because Antioch is the only county in the Bay Area. It's the only city in the Bay Area whose black population has increased. 
and it's increased by about, I forget what they said. Um, I'll look it up for you, but it's, it's increased significantly over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so you can uh, imagine uh, what those folks are thinking. <laughs> They're like, where the hell are you people coming from and how do we stop it? And then they realized they couldn't stop it. So then they just moved to San Francisco. I think it's actually, it's a legacy of disinvestment, right? So across the board, uh, environmental degradation is part of it, right? Um, but what's also true is that there hasn't been investment in this community for a really long time. And so when you can't get a full-service grocery store with fresh food, um, when you can't get quality housing, uh, when you can't get maintenance in your housing, um, when you can't get around, right? Um, you know, when your schools are shutting down, I mean, those are all kind of factors that make people go, hey, I got to find something else. Um, and then, you know, couple that with the, the level of criminalization that there is in this community, um, you know, there's a lot of folks that are like, I'm just tired of being harassed by the same cop all the time. And if I have an opportunity to move somewhere where, you know, eight cops who live in Vallejo but work in San Francisco don't know my name, that's awesome. Right. <laughs> right? I could at least get hassled by a different right. cop. <laughs> you know. well, this is fresh. Right. Um, so I, my guess is that you have some vision of what it would mean to like improve this community in some way that is not based on completely swapping out the people who, who are here. Uh, what is that vision? It's a vision of investing in this community, but investing in the people here and the needs of people here. Um, so that could look a whole bunch of ways, right? I mean, we talk about expanding opportunities for affordable and subsidized housing. Um, we talk about uh deepening the investment in community schools here in Bayview, not charter schools or private schools, right, which are great, um, but schools that people can access that are quality, where their kids can get an education, where their kids aren't getting kicked out of the classroom because they're being told they're unruly, right? Um, you know, investment in local businesses here. Our main staple right now is transit, and, you know, bus lines have been cut here that got people downtown in 15 minutes, and now it takes you an hour, right, on the fancy new T-train that connects both stadiums, right? So what would it look like for people to have transit that actually gets them where they need to be, that allows them to be connected to their family, to take care of their needs, um, and to see other parts of the city, right? I mean, we're in a, in a neighborhood where there's kids that have never been to the Golden Gate Bridge in their own city, and that's just a shame. So for us, you know, we have a vision of community-driven development, uh, that serves the needs of existing communities. And when you do that, everybody benefits. So it's not to say that people shouldn't move in and enjoy the amenities, but it is to say that those amenities should be geared towards folks who have been living and struggling in this community for decades. As bad as things got anywhere in the economy, in general, rich people didn't stop being rich. No, that, every collapse is an opportunity for wealthy people to steal more of what they haven't stolen yet. And they've done a fine job of it. We live in a kleptocracy now. It's not really any proper democracy or any proper capitalist economy. It's basically, I think that the really wealthy people, the 0.001% who have the vast, vast majority of the wealth, they understand what's going on between global climate problems and general economic dislocation and that there's going to be some sort of breakdown, whether revolutionary in a positive sense or just pure chaos remains to be seen. And uh, 
<clears throat> seems that since probably at least the Clinton era, if not earlier, they decided, heck with it, we're just going to just take as much as we can. Just keep take, 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 and then build up these walls around ourselves and just let everybody else slip away. And and go ahead. Access to land has always been part of, uh, I think, the, the way that you deal with coming collapse, right? And so the the this question of you, you got to park all this useless money somewhere and, and so you park it in, in land which is how we're experiencing it here uh, but it's also being it's in and how it's being experienced you know my my one trip to Europe was in in 99 and you know we were in the middle of this huge you know mission anti-displacement coalition and all this big fights against gentrification here in, in San Francisco and you know, I went to Paris and the same thing. I went to, to Madrid, the same thing. I went to Copenhagen, the same thing. It was, you know, everywhere you went, um, there was this this feeling of, of fighting back um, in in urban places. I mean, we're unfortunately in this culture where we are in San Francisco, when talking about gentrification, you have to talk about the way the average person participates in in a kind of unknowing way. So, for instance, all this stuff with Lyft and Uber or... Airbnb and whatnot, all that's about turning more and more little spaces that once were something you might lend to your friend or have a friend visiting you and stay in your house or you borrow your car or whatever. No, no, no. Now you got to sell it. Everything's got to be sold. And this is just the capitalist economy expanding into more and more uh, areas of our lives under the rubric of sharing. There's nothing sharing about selling. I'm sorry. It's just a misnomer and it's bad. It's marketing on their part to call it a sharing economy. It's just about selling more stuff. There's there's the stuff that we think about in terms of like like the big you know the the policies and the incentives and the sort of big structural forces, but then there also seems to be an aspect of it that has to do with sort of who feels entitled to occupy what kind of public space. That type of attitude is also the product of investment, right? And what I mean by that is, um, you know, San Francisco is a place where there are fewer and fewer families, right? And it's reshaping itself to support that. Um, and frankly, I mean, part of the process of gentrification, I think, is almost like a professionalization of space um, and a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like the process in and of itself is very individual, right? So um, it has collective impacts, but it's very individualized. So uh, think about... You know, my neighborhood, for example, in Oakland, it's all families. Very few people have gates on their windows. Uh, but when a white family moved in, right, gates went up, <laughs> right? There were bars on the window. Alarm systems are set, right? There's floodlights everywhere. It's like I'm moving into this community, but I'm afraid of the people who are around me. Um, and that's incentivized, right? I mean, part of it is... Uh, I read this article a couple years ago about the Tenderloin, which they were trying to rename some part of it the Tender Knob, right? Or uh, Lower Knob Hill, I think is what they were calling it, which which made me double over in laughter. The, the, the Knobby Loin never talked right? about it. <laughs> it's just horrible. Uh, and they were calling people who were moving into these million-dollar condos in the Lower Knob Hill or the Tender Knob or whatever it is, urban pioneers, I mean, it's literally incentivized. So there's this whole chic around it, right? It's like, can you survive in the urban jungle? I'm sure you've seen the tour buses. Tell me you've seen the tour buses. Oh my God, you haven't seen the tour buses. They're um, safari themed, 
and they literally are going through the Western edition. I've seen them in the mission. They have zebra stripes, and it's called an urban safari. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, these types of attitudes of annoyance at the natives, right, they're incentivized. It's part of the process. It's part of the cultural production, right, of space. Um, and that's actually oftentimes what people feel the most, right? Many times we don't understand the economic forces and processes underneath. What we feel is the loss of community. We feel the constricting of community or we feel isolated, right? All of a sudden your neighbor you've known for 25 years and you've known their kids and you know their parents you know, tell you to get your ass out the street or whatever it was and you had to listen to them even though they weren't your parents, that's gone, right? People feel that in a deep way. Um, but that's also a reflection of this brutal, evil system, right? It's all about me and mine, and I don't care about you or yours, but you better keep your hands off me and mine, right? And 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 different people's expectations about who gets to use the police to enforce their vision of, of how course. you behave in public. Of course, and the police support that, right? Because fundamentally, they uh, see themselves as protecting property and protecting property interests. Um, and that's how crime gets shaped, right? Um, the narrative of what is a crime, that's how that gets shaped. So, uh, you know, when people walk past me and they clutch their purse, right? <laughs> that is both about race, right? But it's also about a, a fear that comes with this incentivized process. So come into this neighborhood, come enjoy these amenities, um, but be careful because it's not totally flipped yet. <laughs> right? Uh, does race have anything to do with this? <laughs> what are you, Tina Turner? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's this whole thing where it's like, we love your stuff. We love your music. We love your food. You know what I mean? Um, we love your parades and your festivals, but we don't want you here. <laughs> Plain and simple. And that's just true, right? I mean, we talk about that very much with blackness, right? Everybody loves blackness. Nobody loves black people. Uh, and in San Francisco, right? It's like, everybody, you know, I'm going to go to San Francisco and get a burrito. I'm going to Mission Street to get a taco. But then you're not hanging out with the cholo on the corner, you're grabbing your purse, right? Or you're taking your Uber instead of having to be on the, on the Muni with folks, right? right. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad, right? And also a little bit hilarious, right? So for those of us who have been here and lived here and understand the culture of this place and the many cultures that exist in this place, um, it's not as fascinating, right? It just is what it is. It's what makes the city incredible. Um, and we all benefit from it as well. Um, but the kind of hyper reproduction of people's culture without the people is a really integral part, I think, of gentrification. I, I One of the my many attitudes that I get in trouble for is that I do not like the Harley Strictly Bluegrass Festival. Uh, I find it super irritating. Um, I don't like bluegrass music. The only nice thing that I have to say about it is that it's sort of refreshing to see people appropriating white culture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> totally. totally. Uh, even totally. though no one likes actual rednecks and hillbillies. Right, right, uh, but right. we'll take that music. I hear a lot of anger at hipsters all the time, and, it's, and it seems misplaced to me. And it, From my point of view, it seems like 
Also, there's sort of lots of weird white guilt attached to it uh, that isn't useful to any kind of bigger conversation about inequality or speculation or whatever. Mm-hmm. How did how did the do you have a sense of how a conversation about like inequality and poverty and displacement and housing got converted into a conversation about skinny jeans and ironic <laughs> t-shirts? Well, yeah, it, I mean, part of it is as a neighborhood is changed and and there are new people coming in, you know, the gentry, you know, in in the 90s it was the yuppies, right? Now it's the hipsters. Um, in in the 70s, in the hate and the Castro, it was the gays, right? And there was new um, populations that were moving in and others were leaving, and a lot of times leaving not of their own desire, right? There was a, a displacement going on. And so the immediate thing that you see in front of you is the new people moving in, and we're going to name them a certain way. Um, and there's, you know, there... there is probably a lot to it in terms of how the new people fit in or do not fit in or respect the people who've been there before. So, you know, whatever entitlement people are bringing in, of course you're going to kind of breed resentment, right? Um, But that's very different from the real estate agents who are behind that and the developers who are behind that and ultimately behind that, the capital that's um, made a, you know, made a decision. This is a, the, the weirdness of, of capital as this thing, right, that disinvested inner city neighborhoods for 40 years, right? In the 40s, it, it fled to the suburbs. It built all the suburban stuff. and um, The government stepped in to create the Highway Act and to you know do all this stuff to build up suburbs and, and left um, inner cities uh, poor. And now there is this change of, of new people coming in, and that's what people see in, you know, in the first instance. That's the hipsters in their you know, skinny jeans. But there's a whole story behind that that's hidden and obscured. And, yeah, you know. I mean, I feel like a lot, of, a lot of it is sort of very ahistorical. Like, oh, you know, a lot of sort of gentrification is always about the person after me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, like, that's who I see. You know, and they're annoying. Right. Some of them are really annoying, right? And, <laughs> when I was in high school, one of my favorite coffee shops to hang out in was Cafe Macondo on 16th Street, you know? Yeah. And there was an article in the Chronicle about the new bohemian scene, you know, yeah. in the Mission and the, and the you know, and the Brown Fellinis and like, you know, uh, uh, like people doing poetry and, you know, and stuff like that. And it was like, uh, you know, there was there were these waves of like, you know, and, and the epicenter zone where I would go and get my punk records. Yeah. Like, you know, that was, that was, and so it was sort of like that was the early stage, but you know it's sort of like it's not like that was thirty years of history. That was a previous moment of equilibrium that was displacing something else that then got displaced by something. And so I have a hard time, and I, I you know, that in in the is there something useful? Is there is there a, a, a value in talking about who's coming in and what they're doing and how they're using the space or distinguishing between? different types of migration, like the person who comes to this country from Latin America because they're being displaced by death squads versus the person who's coming to San Francisco from the Midwest because they want to be gay here. Like, is there, is there a value in, or someone who's coming because they want to be an artist here or whatever? Like, is there something useful that can be done in distinguishing between different types of migration? You know, again, I don't know that many people in in that, that world now, but when I 
used to hang out with him. There's a lot of cocaine that used to go around the dot com world, um, and you know the 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 way those people are worked um, as they are a kind of working class. They you know they're they're not the owning class, and yet they have a whole bunch more privilege and a whole bunch more, more money and uh, a, a disconnect to the history that they've moved into um, that at times makes them very annoying. And at times, you know, talking to some folks who, you know, just recently around um, kind of mental health issues with the homeless and how much this, this particular person who runs an organization talked about the, the crisis that mental health organizations um, were sort of dealing with in... 2001, when all these dot-com, you know, 20-year-olds suddenly realized that their dreams had gone up in smoke and they were, you know, just as bad off as the people they were displacing a couple of years before. Um, and the, the joke was you couldn't find a U-Haul because they would all move back to Indiana. But, um, but it was, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's easy to make fun of them, but in their skinny jeans and, and whatnot, but at some point they're uh, they some of them may realize how screwed over they are by the system as much as the rest of us are. I mean, I would go to a, a slightly longer view on this question about you m sort of referred to various immigrant waves and possibly contemporaneous to each other many times, and for, certainly we live in that time now. But I was I was here. I got here in '78 to San Francisco at age 20. I had lived in the Bay Area as a kid, but I got into the city finally, and I moved to Hayton Cole, and it was 50% boarded up, the Hayton Street at that point. It was pretty slummy, frankly. My rent was really cheap. I paid 125 bucks a month, and uh, watched the neighborhood gentrify immediately, almost as soon as I arrived. So I was part of that. Moving in as a, you know, college, you know, young white college student moves into the Hayton, which basically was a black neighborhood. The lower hate entirely African American. The all of Page Street from the Golden Gate Park all the way down to Market Street was African American owned by then because they had mostly bought those buildings after the redevelopment fiascos in the Fillmore District. At that point, in the late seventies and at, early eighties, at, at one point, one of my various jokes that I tried to do once on stage that did not go well was that if ever black people returned to reclaim the hate, the streets would flow with blood and patchouli, and you know. <laughs> That there would be an army of, yeah. of, of ironic sitars defending the... Well, the there was this really weird moment in, in the late 60s where there was a lot of black landlords and, and 25 white hippies living in their houses and there was problems. And they would you know, go to their landlord and the landlord would just look at them like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I'm not helping you solve your, your, your problem here. But uh, in any case, the point is just that there's this process of renovation and renewal that goes on in urban environments over and over. In those days, in the late 70s and early 80s, the North Mission was just starting. Actually, the part that you referred to is already in the 90s, I think, with the epicenters on, or maybe late 80s. But by the, in the late 70s, it was lesbian scene, lesbians and punks who moved into North Mission first when it had just been basically white working class community for a long time and Latino for, you know, since the 50s at least. But still a lot of Irish, a lot of Italians, and there's still some around even today. So there's this process that keeps happening, and, and we get lost in the details of which group's coming in and who's displacing who and which cultural expressions they have that annoy us or you know we love, as the case may be. All those things are possible at any given moment. And I think the hard question for us to ask ourselves is, what rights do we have as people who live in a place, in an urban environment, in a neighborhood, to control what happens to that neighborhood apart from our ability to control it through money? Because that's the only thing that right now makes any sense. That, that We all know if you've got enough money, you can buy property and you can influence what happens. 
if you don't have any money, but you've been contributing, as both of us have been all these years, uh, participating in life in the city, doing projects that actually edify and, and deepen people's experiences here, uh, contribute to a cultural ecology that makes it possible for other artists and other writers and other expressive people to find a way to participate here. None of that has any value under the capitalist model that we're living under. So we have no right, there's no democracy about deciding how is the neighborhood going to evolve. It's just this frenzy that comes periodically when money comes flowing in. So one of the great dramas for people talking about gentrification is they get hung up on like, oh, we got to keep the needles on the ground because that keeps those assholes away. And it's like, that's just silly. You know, it's like, it's not a problem to put in, you know, urban... Uh, greenery on your front of your house, or paint your house, or with the you know the whole thing with the Victorians in the late '70s and early '80s when the gays came in with money. The first day we didn't have any money; they were just working class guys who said, "Oh, let's fix up this nice old house and make it look pretty." And then pretty soon, money showed up behind them. And you can go back in other cities and other places in the world and see this happening back in the late part of the 19th century at the the north shores of Lago Maggiore, uh, at the border between Switzerland and Italy. There's a little town called Ascona. And Bakunin, the famous anarchist, shows up in 1870 and makes a little like uh, camp on top of this little hill there called the Mountain of Truth, Monte Verita. And within tw- 10 years of that come the theosophists and the vegetarians and the nudists. And there's pictures <laughs> of nudist Germans standing in circles in southern Switzerland doing these rituals and holding hands. And after them came Isadora Duncan and then Hermann Hesse and all these artists showed up. And then t- in the 1920s came the money. And today it's one of the richest places in all of Europe and you cannot buy property there, forget it. So this cycle of gentrification, as we keep using the term, is just it goes with urban life and it goes with capitalist urbanism. And so if we want to change that, we want to have an influence on it, it's not so much about complaining about which population's moving in and which one's moving out. I mean, those are the painful realities for the people living them. But the bigger question is, how do we have a political mechanism that's political, not economic, to alter that process. Because right now, we, we've, dis, we've, since the beginning of America, divorced politics from economics. And, and the market's supposed to have its own life, and very rarely will the government or citizens in, you know, interfere with the process of money deciding things. And if we're ever going to have any effect on this process, that's exactly what we have to figure out, is how do you get a right to stay in a neighborhood when you don't have the money? To begin talking about not private property, but the commons... Uh, or even talking about, you know, that this, this concept of private property is a fairly recent sort of Western invention um, of dividing up land as an economic thing, right? Um, that, you know, not so long ago there was a sense of, of personal property as, you know, this is what you're using, and, but somebody else isn't necessarily owning it or you're, it's not something that you have to buy and to sell. It's It's part of the life of the community um, and it's complex in that you know it's easy to sort of start talking about the commons and you make a little you know 30 foot by 30 foot community garden and there's your solution to the commons you know <laughs> we created a commons right uh, or you've liberated some piece of the street temporarily um, which is is uh, our great acts of, of sort of agitprop of, of maybe opening people's minds a little bit or having a conversation. What we find in the Mission District is <clears throat> um, about 60% of the families in, in Mission District schools actually live outside of the Mission. And a lot of those uh, actually live in the Excelsior and, and in the TL because that's where we assume they've been displaced to and that their kids are still in, in the neighborhood schools. Um, and the conversation turned to a sense of ownership of the rental buildings that we're at, 
particularly for immigrant folks who may have been in those buildings for 30 years, um, there's still a sense that the landlord is the Lord, is, is owns, even though they have put in 30 years of their lives into those buildings. They have done uh, the repairs to those buildings. Um, the schools are still sort of this, this thing rather than they own those schools because they are part of that community. Um, so there's still a lot of sort of, you know, I, I think one of the, the challenges, I think, is to, to crack that private property code that, that gives all the power to that person who happens to have the title to that land who can turn it around and sell it. Well, I mean, private property is at the heart of these relationships. And as long as that exists and is given basically Trump power over everything, which is the way it works under the United States Supreme Court, you know, if you wanted to try to bring up any other logic, it'll always come back to property and who owns it and they have the right. And so we really have to put a break on that. You know, there has to be a, a, some other way of organizing life together in cities. And based on the notion of the commons means that the time you put into living in a place which should generate some sort of rights. Now, I don't know if ownership rights is the right way to frame it. I think we just get mm-hmm. into deeper trouble that way. Mm-hmm. But, but I think mm-hmm. that there should be a sense of community integrity. And, you know, there's a, even in, from San Francisco's own history, Henry George came up with this whole theory of, of land and land rent. And it was really arguing that nobody should be allowed to own land. The land should be held in common because it is a common resource, and why should it be privatized? So the building, okay, fine, you own the building on top of the land, but the land is not owned by you. So that way, that would change a lot of things about taxes and and value and and uh, markets around property, also just that alone. But I would be in favor of going even further. You're listening to the NATO sessions. I'm NATO Green. We'll be back with more on gentrification. What would it look like for um, uh, a different level of incentivization, if that's even a word, right? So um, It is now. You know, I mean, Lennar got 780 acres of waterfront property for a dollar. That's a huge incentive, right? (laughs) I'm trying to get something for a dollar. Can I get a house? Can I even get a pack of gum for a dollar? But again, I mean, I don't think it's that they're brilliant. I think it's that they have help. Um, and it's it's corporate welfare at its worst, right? And um, you know, there's this whole kind of narrative, right? That um, you know, I mean, we saw this in the in the Google bus protests, which were incredible, super awesome. Uh, but that narrative around, you know, if you can't afford to live here, you should leave. Right? It's an incentivized narrative, right? I mean, essentially, San Francisco, Oakland, our cities are becoming a playground for tech workers, tech companies, um, financial capital, real estate capital, and, and entertainment, you know, I hate to say it, right? But I know you're a comedian trying to get out there and make it. Oh, no. And I'm, you should be making it. I am a dancing monkey for my own gentrifiers listen, every night. Listen, <laughs> listen, <laughs> you know? Um, but the reality is, right, that um, it, if different things were incentivized, this process would look really different. And it's not to say that you wouldn't still have similar patterns, but the outcomes, I think, would be really, really different. They share interests, but they also fight each other, which is interesting. And I think uh, on a bigger level, right, it would behoove those of us who are um, trying to fight the kind of 
gentrifying of our communities to think about that piece, right? So the Google bus is an outcome, right? But it's not the root cause. (laughs) So basically, how do you take advantage of the fights that they have between each other to get the stuff that you need? Yesterday, uh, KQED did a show on Forum about the housing costs in the Bay Area. And what was remarkable to me about it was that uh, there was the the guests were seen to be unanimous in their view that uh, a whole lot more market rate construction, less regulation, and less rent control were the keys to saving housing to to, to lowering housing costs. And my impression is that, like particularly in the Bay Area at this point, uh, like I feel like the real estate market in the Bay Area is like cocaine in the eighties, like. There's just so much money to be made that, you know, uh, like sending a few DEA agents after it, but metaphorically, <laughs> is not is, you know, like is not gonna maybe you maybe you nab some some low level uh, dealers, but you don't get to anything. There's no, they're probably wrong, right? That's that was it sounded like bullshit to me, but I don't actually know. I feel like we have a counterfactual before our eyes, which is that these like people keep saying, well, we need to build more. And then I say, have you seen the skyline down in South of Market? Like, they're throwing up these towers as fast as they can, and it does. It seems to be making things worse. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, uh, is there, w- w- do you know of evidence uh, about, like, what public policies and development practices would actually make housing more affordable and lower housing costs? Yeah, there's a really great system that was implemented in Vienna, uh, Austria, as well as in Stockholm back in the 1920s when they had red governments in both cities, you know, run by socialists. And they created vast swaths of land built as workers' housing on the principle of a land trust so that nobody could ever own the land. It's owned in perpetuity by the public as the, in common. And then you would rent your properties from the government who would basically you know, facilitate the construction of all these things. And they were set values. You couldn't ever raise the rents either because they would just built it out so that there was no reason for it to inflate. And to this day, they still have huge amounts of public uh, worker housing that's very affordable in those cities because they took that land off the market forever. And so even in San Francisco, we are starting that process. There's, I think, three properties now that the SFCLT has, San Francisco Community Land Trust, and a lot of us are, are trying to figure out as people who are feeling the fuse burning on our properties where I, I pay very low rent. I live in a beautiful apartment in, on 24th and Folsom where I've lived for more than 10 years. My neighbors have all been there that long too. One woman was born in the building. She's 60 years old. She's been living there. The landlady herself has been there her whole life, 81 years old. And uh, when she dies, the building's going to get sold and the fear is that it's going to get sold in the open market at ridiculous prices and they'll act us all out and we'll be gone. So we're trying to figure out can we together create a land trust model to get the building off the market before it goes that far. And that's the best hope, I think, for all of us to put a wrench in this system under as a reform within capitalism, not to overthrow private property and capitalism, but just a way to get a mechanism to slow it down. But there's also the fact that, that for these people um, who so strongly believe in it and who go on the shows and who get quoted on TV and on on in newspapers, that it's it's about supply and demand. Um, they, there, the, the the magical thinking is so strong that they cannot look at, at the facts of what what's actually getting built. So those cranes that you're looking at. So um, so from 1960 until now, 
we have built roughly 1.4 new units for each new person who has moved into San Francisco. So if you look at population growth from, from 1960 to, to 2010, you look at how many units were built, we built 1.4 units per person. So if supply and demand was working, well, then certainly we must have the cheapest housing around if we've been building you know, almost one and a half units per person. Um, something's going on here. Um, and who is buying those those units, and is that really uh, a are there people living in a lot of those units? Because I think you know back to to the other side of the argument is there is a there may be a local demand as with you know the price bubbles and economic bubbles and, and bursts that that happen, but there is this other demand that is a global demand from capitalists trying to park their you know money somewhere and sticking it in in there with you know, through their hedge funds and whatnot. Um, so I think that this, this piece about the, the, the inalienable truths of private property and supply and demand need to be challenged on, on facts of just, how's it working? Um, and then once you can break through that, there's like, yeah, let's look at what other places have done. And Vienna is, you know... Um, Probably stands out as one of those those big examples. The um, it, 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 I also feel like there's probably some that that it that it it, still, it also reflects what the economic base of the city is. Like if if we destroyed Twitter and Zynga tomorrow and put auto factories there, the housing market would change, right? You know that uh, because those that it would be, there'd be a different because we have this hourglass economy where we have. These super high-paid, high-finance, high-tech workers, and their low-wage servants—you know, basically—and the only thing in the middle is, you know, Bart workers. Right. The top tenth, twenty-five percent, has been getting bigger, and the bottom-most twenty-five percent um, has been getting bigger. So, um, all the restaurant workers and janitorial services and groundskeepers and everything that is associated with then the the high-end jobs um, are the two pieces that are sort of growing in the economy right we had this argument I was I was involved in 2003 in, in pushing the San Francisco minimum wage initiative and there you know and there was this whole backlash from the restaurant industry about how they were gonna have to raise prices and and I was like so you know the amount that they have to raise prices at Gary Danko before someone decides that they're going to go to Quiznos instead is a lot. Why is it that in every city, the smartest activists have been concerned about and trying to figure out how what to do about gentrification and have mostly failed? First of all, <laughs> am I wrong? Have, is, have, have, have our people failed? And what is why have we been unable to figure out bigger, more effective organizing responses to... These dynamics. That's a good question. Uh, I think we're not winning. That's for sure. Uh, failure would say game over, right? Um, and then you got to figure out if you're going to join the hipsters or move to Antioch, right? right. <laughs> or wherever you are. Um, yeah, so there, there are times where I'm like, look, I like good food. Let's either figure this out or just enjoy the meal because. <laughs> These snacks are delicious. <laughs> and look, I mean, the reality is, right, uh, that's true. I'm not sure we know how to talk to people. 
about this process so and what we want them to do. So, you know, it's all, it's completely incredible, again, to um, create a public spectacle that creates a public conversation about gentrification in San Francisco. Um, did anything shift? Right? So, for example, what would you tell those tech workers to do? What do you want them to do about it? They're making eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year. They want to be close to their job. They got a nice place. They can do what they want. And they're like, what do you want me to do about it? And we don't have an answer except move out, leave. Where am I supposed to go? Back to rural Pennsylvania? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, just to keep it real. I mean, right. San Francisco very much has always been a place where people come to because they can be who they are. <clears throat> so there's a question of figuring out what are the alliances that can be made um, so that we can build power because we can't do it by ourselves. There's not going to be, in my vision, right, there's not going to be this huge tidal wave of working class people that are like, you're out of here, right? It actually has to be a multi-class, multi-racial alliance of folks who um, see their common interests. There's this component of like, who are you fighting, right? Um, I'm not fighting hipsters on Mission Street. I don't particularly like them. They irritate me. Um, but I have strategies to deal with that, right? Um, but I see the fight, right, as um, a fight for uh, control of decision-making um, and control of capital. There's a way in which we shoot ourselves in the foot um, because we're trying to be politically expedient, right, instead of um, politically clear, right? So here's what I mean by that. We got into some big fights a couple of years ago uh, here in this neighborhood around development. And essentially what we were saying was we want more control through a number of different mechanisms, right? So instead of development being kind of decided upon and rubber stamped through a quasi-state agency that was not elected and not accountable to anybody but business interests, um, we wanted that process opened up. We were fighting with some of our friends around what do we do, right? Um, some folks chose to kind of cut deals, right? So this is the best we can get, so we may as well make the best out of it. And, you know, without going too far downfield, I think I would say that, A, um, the demands weren't high enough, right? Um, when you're in a position to negotiate, right, and they need you and you need them, what do you come with? The history of San Francisco that we've seen has always been like that you get these funky cross-class coalitions where you get people who are concerned about housing and economic justice suddenly in bed with these NIMBY folks who don't want their view blocked. And if that's what it takes to get to yep. a political majority, yep. I guess that's what we have to do. But it seems like, I don't give a shit about that guy's view. You do have to make compromise. Um, but you have to do it in a way where you understand very clearly what are the long-term consequences, right? Not just, we're going to get this right now and we'll deal with that later. Um, where are we actually headed, right? What are we actually trying to do? Investing in community is good for business. How investing in community is good for residents and how investing in community is good for industry, but it's never framed that way, right? Um, so we have a, we have a communication issue. Um, we have an organizing issue. 
Um, it's not enough of us out there actually organizing, meaning not just telling people what's wrong, but building relationships with people and empowering people to want to join the fight to build power so that we can win. And creating the structures that will release that initiative. Absolutely. There was this interesting. There was an article in the New York Times that was getting yesterday that was getting shared around a lot about about what the tech industry didn't learn about urban planning. Did mm. you see it? Mm-mm. And it was about about the thing. the The jam of the article was about how the tech industry has appropriated this language about community and public space to talk about privatization, yep. basically. Yep. Um, but the exa- the the leading example was how Google bought the Hill Plaza office building mm-hmm. uh, down in the Embarcadero, and as a consequence of that, and them sort of sucking all their people inside their vortex, that they that the uh, struggling beloved local business, the neighborhood Starbucks, yep. um, <laughs> uh, like folded mm-hmm. and Gordon Biersch and stuff. The article made no mention that the reason that the Hill Plaza is called the Hill Plaza is that it was the factory of Hills Brothers Coffee mm. uh, once upon a time mm. um, where working people roasted coffee beans that mm-hmm. had been loaded off the port. Yeah. Uh, and it was at the Embarcadero because it was close to the port. Um, and, uh, you know, mm. and so, like, I would, n- nobody seems to have figured out what a model is of, like, equitable urban economic development that isn't based on these, like, you know, high tech, high finance, high income jobs, and their low wage servants. Mm-hmm. But it seems like that's it's sort of front and center for us. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, and a lot of it is a question of regulation. You know, um, which local municipal governments aren't willing to do um, because that's where they get their cash from. In Carl Bytel's recent book, uh, Local Protest Global Movements, he does actually a quite a good job of analyzing what happened to the Mission Anti-Displacement Coalition and how the, the folks who were the most involved with it became very adept at managing the language of zoning and land use and finally suddenly found themselves disconnected from the original grassroots upheaval and became sort of semi-professionally involved in this huge eastern zoning process and were no longer representing anybody but themselves. And it was not because it was their self-interest to get anywhere with it, but just that they were now ensconced in that world that sucked them in. So that's one thing that happens in social movements is they get co-opted by a very adaptive system that knows how to suck up energy and and spit it back at you in bad ways later. They'll kill you if they invite you to be on a Blue Ribbon Commission or something. Yeah, and there's a million ways. task force. (laughs) So much of what American democracy does, and we have this amazing commission system here in San Francisco where you're just constantly invited to come and testify to commissions all day long. You spend your whole life at City Hall making testifying <laughs> and it doesn't do one goddamn thing. They know what they're going to do behind the scenes before they even start the, the testifying process, but they act like they're consulting the public and they act like they really care what you have to say and they go through the whole charade over and over and over again and many, many people spend an awful lot of time participating in that. Right, and, and if you don't show up and spend the whole day testifying, then they'll blame you when they for not showing up. <laughs> Yeah, it's a self-perpetuating system. So that's part of the problem is the co-optation, I'd say, is a big part of why nothing profoundly changes because the co-optation brings you into the logic where you start inevitably thinking about the problems that they were thinking about in the way they're thinking about them, and you need to solve it on those terms, especially around questions of land use and zoning, which doesn't it never says, oh, let's just take a huge chunk of the city off the market right? and right. build a totally different way of thinking about you know land trusts and let's let the residents own their own spaces within the land trust as limited equity co-ops and we'll subsidize them with public money so they can afford to buy it. They don't have to be renters anymore and you know, just really break the logic that we're living in. Let's just do that. Come on, we can afford it. It's a rich city. In the course of producing this podcast uh, and doing these interviews, uh, 
the world started to change around us, and I even got drawn into something that's not uncommon for me. Uh, I, I took myself down to the Board of Supervisors to testify in support of the Marsh Theater that was, uh, it's a, a, a long-running, beloved community theater that was uh, being threatened with some displacement by uh, development of high-end condos next door to them, and they needed support from the arts community. So I gave public comment in support of the Marsh uh, and, and, uh, and their concerns about how the new condo development would potentially uh, damage the theater. And so here that is. San Francisco has been a welcoming place for generations of artists to move to, going back at least to the 50s. Uh, that should continue. No one, you know, the city genuflects before the opera and baseball. No one likes opera. Uh, seriously. <laughs> people, people like being able to afford to be seen at the opera. Uh, no one likes baseball. People like winners. But we are making art for losers by losers. And we need a place in this city. Uh, we don't have riots or cause traffic jams or, uh, or beat up Dodger fans. We cry in our beer and have regrettable sex with baristas like we're supposed to. And we need some, some respect and some uh, uh, recognition. If you need a, just, a sequel justification to mitigate this project, I think there are significant uh, unmitigated cumulative impacts of bringing so many new assholes into the neighborhood. And I think the city needs to look at that. So uh, thank you very much. I made a great. <laughs> I thought you might want to speak to the fact that we have what is about 100,000 units in San Francisco built by the nonprofit housing sector over the last 30 years, which is a successful example of the resistance taking an institutional form that actually has kept a lot of people in the city who otherwise would have been displaced during this time. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, in that, uh, because I think in, in, in my work, I'm, I'm very much involved in those sort of incremental in, in, the, in the system kind of steps. But, you know, there's, there's a question about how we build up those little wins. Um, and there is now, I think, for maybe the first time, um, starting to happen a discussion that uh, partly began in one of these kind of neighborhood planning kind of processes um, in what's called the Western Soma, uh, where folks began to advocate um, some sort of system of metering the amount of market rate housing linked to the amount of affordable housing that got built. If you don't build what we've traditionally built, because in South of Market, nobody except affordable housing developers were building for 40 years. Um, and, you know, commercial developers, you know, Moscone centers and all that after they tore down everything. Uh, but it was primarily, um, uh, or in a large part, affordable housing developers that built maybe 40% of, of the housing that was built in this sort of deindustrializing area. Uh, so folks said, you know, here, we've, we've got a precedent. This is what we want to keep doing. If you got too much market rate housing, we want to stop it till you get the affordable housing to catch up. And uh, it's starting to get some residents um, outside of that particular neighborhood. Um, it's going to be a tough sell, uh, both legally, you know. So again, working in the system, how do you get past those private property takings? Is what the the legal people like to say. You can't take away the private property owner's right to make as much money as they can off their land. Um, but you know, we're so we're trying to figure out the the hooks on that because. Ultimately, um, 
and I believe that we have facts on our side that no amount of market rate housing is going to solve the problem that we face. Um, and maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's, that's, uh, uh, that may be untrue. Let's, let's put it as the, the amount of affordable housing of housing affordable to regular people that needs to get built. Um, you know, you just look at the, the numbers, you know, it's sort of the median income is 75,000 half the people make less than that. We should be building half the housing for people who make less than that. Um, that's, you know, that seems pretty, pretty logical. Um, and the developers are only building for people who make three times that. Uh, and so we're not solving any problems and we will not solve any problems by allowing more of that. Some of the same people having that conversation are also thinking about a municipal bank because San Francisco puts, I think, seven or eight billion dollars into Wells Fargo, and the interest generated belongs over there, not to the city of San Francisco to a great extent. So, really, if the city had its own funds available to itself to make intelligent investment decisions, it could finance the acquisition of a great deal of property in a relatively short time for the purposes of stabilizing communities of people who actually live here. Whether it's the people who are here and the new people who are arriving and then being annoying in whatever way they're annoying, or the low-income tenants versus the struggling, you know, person who wants to have a TIC and, you know, scrape together their pennies to be able to buy their, you know, like, it all feels like pitting, the, you know, pitting the bottom 20% against the next 20% to That's me. That's how it's always um, been. <laughs> and and <laughs> sort of what's the, like, uh, that... To me, you know, my sense is that the that the that the art and the craft of resolving this is figuring out what the what the mix of um, policy solutions that would actually help are, and how they align with creating a political coalition that can have an electoral majority to win stuff. What's what's your prognosis about that process happening? I, th- I think one thing be- before getting to that, there is. Uh, kind of a protest and direct action part of it that is that is also part of it. And I think one of the challenges um, that we had in, in Mac, for example, there was a, a moment in um, 2000, I don't know when it was, five or six, um, when we were trying to get uh, a privately owned site at the corner of uh, Cesar Chavez and Mission to be turned into affordable housing. So we did sit-ins and we did, you know, Put up our tents there. Is that the thing that is now the the Wells Fargo or the Walgreens? The Walgreens with it's it's one of the the ugliest new buildings that that I've seen. That's just my affordable housing side saying. You know, we we always build nicer buildings than the market rate people, anyways. Um, But at the same time as we were doing that, there was the hipsters were protesting an American Apparel that wanted to move into Valencia Street. I think on this very block that were sitting in like two doors down and we try to get a conversation going between these two different constituencies different um angles on what gentrification looked like but you know seemed to make sense we should all be working together you know affordable housing and and fighting the chain stores um and one of the things that i think is is uh is happening this round is now there's this whole Jack Spade thing and you know, all these people are riled up about Jack Spade and there's a whole sort of 
what what we're seeing is a very concerted effort to gentrify 24th Street. Concerted in the sense that it's not just you know some newer, more hip um, uh, uh, building owners or store owners moving in, but actually a concerted effort of real estate interests who are approaching every single um, building down 24th Street and starting to make you know making offers and trying to transform the street. And that conversation between the 24th Street people and the Jack Spade people on, on Melancia Street is happening. And that's, you know, so there's this sort of, you know, different generations of people who uh, uh, might otherwise not find common ground are starting, you know, hopefully seeing some of these um, uh, commonalities around who the real targets are. You know? um, I think, you know, and that's on at this point on the kind of protest side um, that might then lead to the, you know whatever other structural changes we can make. But, I, I mean, I'm a person that's had a lot of disdain for electoral politics for a long time, and I don't think you can really affect these things very well that way. I'm partly in San Francisco, you have a you know deeply rooted conservative population in large parts of the city, so electing a majority that's going to be have a radical attitude towards private property seems really far-fetched to me at this moment. So I always am in the middle of various efforts to create space where different conversations can happen and that they happen sometimes around these specific cases like that Fernando was talking about, these direct action campaigns, which are often seem to me to be terribly limited in their, their efforts and their scope, but nevertheless do get people into a different conversation with each other. So... The possibilities of changing how we talk about things, I think, are are uh, always present, and it's kind of the biggest task ahead. If you want to think about something that could actually alter these larger patterns that we're living in, we have to have a different way of talking about what we're trying to do. And people on the left have failed miserably on this for a very long time, and partly because some people on the left are really stuck in 20th century visions of what being on the left means. They just have statist fantasies about, oh, the government will solve all our problems, just get a, you know aggressive government in place. Whereas I think the real issue is that we need to have a, a broad democratic. I think you're expressing counter-revolutionary bourgeois tendencies. Chris, clearly, say that. clearly, yeah, no, and, and happily, proudly so. More throughout the this late '70s and '80s, there were these continuing uh, kind of NIMBY proposals to downzone the, you know, no more high rises, Diane Feinstein kind of, you know, Manhattanization of, of San Francisco, all these, you know, office buildings. Um, and Prop M came along, and, and among other things, it set an annual limit to how much office space should be built and whatever, uh, which was a way of, of kind of controlling growth. But it, it also said, and all these things need to pay for themselves. They need to pay transit. They need to pay child care. We need to uh, reframe how the planning department, you know, to better or worse, I think they've been ignoring it, uh, set these priority policies for the city and the people of San Francisco shall vote on these things and the people of San Francisco voted and approved that affordable housing should be a primary interest of why we develop that um, a jobs for everyone should be a primary reason for why we make decisions um, and in that moment in time that became a, a, a piece of the conversation and it, it worked partly by joining this sort of NIMBY concern about the, the heights of towers with uh, finally being able to win an argument that was about um, what should development in the city look like. And I think, in particular, I think ballot initiatives present or can present those opportunities uh, for furthering those discussions. So talk to a lot of people in a hurry. I mean, I certainly felt like 
there was, the, you know, that the moment that came around during the first dot com boom in the late nineties, and you know that sort of the, that sequence of like that and was it props K and L and you know the million band march uh, mm-hmm. uh, and you know people like Kirk Hammett from Metallica getting in on you know evictions of artists and you know and then the Amiano writing campaign was like the sort of moment that you know built our progressive movement in San Francisco for the next you know bunch of the next 10 years and it feels like the the things have gotten bad enough and the and the kleptocracy has gotten sort of crass enough that we might be headed for that kind of opportunity again if people are able to get together to seize it I think to, to, to Chris's point though I think for uh, you know part of uh, that that sort of the, the the arc of Mac is is that question of not staying in just in that position, but how is how is the grassroots remain mobilized and energized and talking and going to those next steps um, as there's that subset of people like me who get involved in all this policy stuff, you know? Um, and I think you know that's a challenge, you know that that as these things progress over time, you might get some little policy win, but you've sort of had this moment of real energy and then it sort of dissipates rather than pushing to the next step and the next step and the next step of, of change, of real change. Uh, I, I have a leading question that I think is, we'll probably be, and then we're, and then I think we can, we can wrap it up to that point about how, how a grassroots movement does that. Are you aware of any relevant lessons learned on that point from Latin America? In Bolivia and El Alto, the neighborhood above La Paz, mm. there's a, 700,000 people living there and over the last 20 years or so they had this incredible political moment with the, you know where they just stepped up they blocked access to the airport at different moments for the political elite they brought down four presidents in a row in Bolivia leading to Evo Morales winning which is a mixed bag to say the least but um, they have this very dynamic grassroots assembly process in that area and many of them had experience as coal, as tin miners and they ended up now work as ambulantes they're just like selling crap on the streets that's the only economy left for many of them but they had this long history of being like classic working industrial working class people who had a community that first of all were very infused with you know marx marxist thinking and then they also knew how to organize and they get the idea of direct democratic consultation at the base so there's a place in South American society, one place, there's other places like that too. I mean, the student movement in Chile similarly has emerged from seemingly nowhere and turned into an incredibly dynamic scene. This big uprising that just took place in Brazil was very interesting also. But there are these moments happening in other parts of the world. Turkey just had another one far from South America where out of, you know... For the purposes of this conversation, Turkey's part of South America. <laughs> I don't think they're going to like that. <laughs> Anyway, the point I'll being that them in things, Spanish, they things, won't understand things, things are emergent, and they're emergent in ways that we can see in our own experience with Occupy, for better and for worse, it came and it went, but uh, it's still there, too. We didn't slaughter everybody. You know, tens of thousands of Americans, along with hundreds of thousands of people around the world, have had a very interesting experience of grassroots horizontalism over the past 25 years, and sometimes very recently, and we're still alive, and we're still thinking, we're still trying to figure out how to get the new forms together, and a lot of times, you know, the electoral stuff seems like the only game in town. And I would argue, no, it's not. There's actually, that's fine. I mean, that's going to happen. And maybe it's time to put some energy into that once in a while. But the really interesting thing is what can we see emergent 
from our daily lives where the, the kind of grassroots energy that we're talking about wanting to see it keep going, well, if there's a vision of the other life that we're trying to get to, it that fuels it. And if we start the conversation with each other, we can be in public together, we can reoccupy public space on a different basis, we can think about what we do differently, and then how we live together differently, then, you know, revolutionary agenda suddenly is right in front of us. But it's not easy to get there, and it's not like some group of small activists can just trigger it and say, we're going to start this on next Tuesday. You know, it doesn't work like that. We don't know how it works. That's one of the great mysteries of this period of history is that clearly the old systems are breaking down. It's not clear what the new systems are going to look like, but there are there are glimmers of it in all these really interesting social upheavals that have happened steadily for the last 15 years, since Seattle at least, if not even, well, we go back to the Zapatistas or even earlier to the, uh, how do you say it in the Venezuelan one, the caracola? No, the carazola. Oh, la, el cacerolazo. Casa, thank you, I can't say that. Uh, anyway, so, so the anti-structural uh, adjustment riots in Venezuela and Nigeria and other places like that in the late 80s and early 90s also set this in motion. And we're still in that sequence. And it's a big sequence of changing the world system that we're living out. And we can only do it locally, but there's things to take heart from that are far, far removed from our everyday lives. I mean, it feels to me like like we're sort of in a moment where there's some momentum gathering, and that you know, and that the the basis for that cross coalition, the class, cross class coalition that we're mm-hmm. talking about, exists because people who are that suddenly, if you make a, you can make a hundred thousand dollars a year and feel precarious in San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, there in 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 every moment uh, when the middle class is facing what some of our old time comrades would call proletarianization mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. they some of them go hard at yep. go a hard up and some of them go yep. hard down yep. you know what i mean yep. and it's sort of like but it feels like there's this momentum right yep. now yep. what's your assessment of that and what's your what's your plan for the next you know to to capitalize on it yeah i mean i think it's great um, <clears throat> there's waves right and we're in another wave um I think a couple things. So one is super exciting. Um, should really pay attention to uh, reflecting the communities that are the most at risk. Um, you know, I was having this conversation with someone the other day and I was saying, yes, absolutely. Like folks who are making $80,000 a year are uh, not able to afford to live in San Francisco um, and are really upset about that. And you should be. Anybody who can't afford to be where they want to kind of plant roots should be upset about not being able to do that. And, right, if those voices are louder than the family of four that's not even making $80,000 a year, then some of the things that we do to address the, the, the one person who's making $80,000 a year are still going to not be helpful for the family of four that is not going to ever get to that level. Um, so we have to be really mindful of that, right? Um, and mindful of this language of displacement. Because some of those folks are now moving to Oakland and driving up the prices, right? Why? Because they're starting almost like a bidding war, right? It's so much less expensive in Oakland that everybody's trying to get there, right? Which means it's making prices skyrocket people are like, oh, well, you were going to pay $300,000 for that house? I'll pay $500,000 for that house, right? <laughs> Just to be able to own property in the Bay Area, which is an asset in and of itself. Um, the other thing that's exciting to me, though, about this moment is um, the increased participation of labor, I think is really important and needs to expand. Um, 
And then the other piece that's really exciting to me is that uh, we're in a moment where you can have a conversation about economics, right? Um, and it doesn't always feel like we can do that. And I think the opportunity of a cross-class coalition, right, is to be able to um, really broaden our language around the impacts of gentrification um, bigger than um, what people often think about, right? What we often think about and care about the most, which is working class folks of color, immigrant families, working class people. Um, some folks don't want to hear that and they don't want to talk about it, right? So we have to use different messengers for different constituencies, but can we all have the same message? Given who the base of your organization is, are you do doing anything to prepare your members for being in different kinds of coalitions with some, like, you know, well-intentioned but frequently confused people who suddenly find themselves in the same boat as your members? Absolutely. Or similar? Absolutely. And our members are great because, um, you know, <laughs> they're not confused. Um, and... Uh, you know, I mean, for us, we just had a membership assembly where we talked about this process and what was happening. Um, and folks were schooling each other, right, about the forces underneath it, um, the impacts, right, um, and, and making connections between things that you wouldn't normally connect, right? Like, what does immigration reform have to do with displacement? Um, what does uh, public transit funding, right, have to do with immigration reform? Those types of things, right? Um, so I would say yes, and I would say also where our folks are prepared to engage um, is complicating the question beyond black and white, yes or no, um, but more so being able to talk about what would it look like to have a city for everyone, right? And recognizing that the whole kind of Thatcherist, uh, Reaganist, trickle-down theory of economics is just garbage, right? And that really... When you invest in the folks that have nothing, it bubbles up. <laughs> and that's actually a more sustainable model, right? So, yes, our folks are prepared, excited to engage, um, and excited to help shape and shift the conversation. That's great. And what are we doing towards that end? Lots of political education, lots of exposing and engaging our folks to more than just what we do, right? Um, and also just encouraging people to get in the fight, right? Talk to your neighbors, um, talk to your friends, and bring people through, right? So what we find also is that there's a lot of people who are concerned, and they are making $80,000 a year, and they don't know how to plug in. They don't know how to be involved. Um, so we need to be a place where people can engage, right? Um, and feel like they can be part of a movement to equalize and make more equitable the playing field. Um, and we have a little bit of work to do, but that's where we're headed. Cool. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you. These were my interviews with Fernando Marti of the Council of Community Housing Organizations, Chris Carlson, uh, local writer and historian, and Alicia Garza of uh, Power. Um, one of the things that I wanted to come back to, because uh, it's been driving me crazy, uh, around this whole conversation about gentrification in San Francisco, a lot of what people are talking about when we talk about gentrification is the cost of housing. And it's become accepted as true. People just assume that the problem with housing is uh, that we need more supply in San Francisco. Uh, it's an article of faith in, in San Francisco politics. Uh, people, There's a number that we need to be building 5,000 units uh, a year. 
Um, and, uh, and, and I am skeptical. Uh, and I started doing research on it because I smelled bullshit. And I kept asking people who were uh, supporting that view if anyone had any actual empirical evidence that would support the idea that increasing the supply of housing would make the city more affordable. Uh, and the argument uh, pretty much stopped there. Um, people would say, no, of course, we don't have evidence. It's just the law of supply and demand. It's the most basic theory of economics. We don't need evidence to support this. And I just don't buy it. I don't buy it for lots of reasons uh, because uh, uh, individuals are not rational self-maximizers when it comes to housing. Uh, that's uh, People don't make uh, housing choices based on, on just that, that there are fact all, what what economists call externalities or like everything about housing and where people choose to live uh if if housing were subject to the law of supply and demand we wouldn't have 24 empty homes for every homeless american there would be no homelessness and the market would just figure it out um and uh and as rebecca solnit uh, the writer uh, pointed out recently online that uh, San Francisco uh, and New York City are the first and second most densely populated urban areas in the country that coincidentally are the most expensive. So uh, it's not just an issue of density that uh, that matters. And there's certainly, the question I keep asking is, even if uh, increasing density and build increasing supply would help, like there are some things that we know as matters of public policy and economics. Uh, for example, uh, you know, we know now we have empirical data and analysis that uh, we can be pretty confident that raising the minimum wage does not reduce it does not reduce employment. We know that if you want to stimulate economic activity, uh, food stamps and unemployment insurance stimulate more than tax cuts. Uh, does anyone know what local housing policies make cities more affordable across all income levels? Uh, uh, what are the best policies? Is it, If it's increasing supply, then someone show me the evidence. If it's something else, then we should be having that conversation. Um, so uh, uh, I, if, if, if you know, please send it to me, email it, hit me on Twitter. I want to know. I, I will be persuaded by evidence and not, uh, not people's fanciful theories. Uh, this has been the NATO Sessions. Uh, you can subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you like it, please give us a good review. Share us around. Um, you can follow me at NATO Green on Twitter. Uh, this has been a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center, uh, executive produced by Dan Wolf, edited by Steve Bissinger, theme music by DJ Reel. You can see me do stand-up every Wednesday at the Dark Room Theater with the business in the Mission District of San Francisco. I've been NATO Green. Thanks a lot. Everybody.